Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. Today I'm joined by Nick DeSabado. Actually, Nick and I spoke over a year ago and I'm only just now getting around to releasing the episode, so shame on me. But the timing actually might be kind of good because we discuss value-based design and Nick has just launched the pre-order for a new book called Value-Based Design, which is for designers who are looking to get more respect. You can check that out at draft.nu slash value. That's draft.nu slash value. And of course, you can go to the show notes and there'll be a link there as well. But please stay tuned for Nick to tell us all about value-based design. Enjoy. Nick, welcome to the show. Hey there. Happy to be here. Can you tell folks a little bit about yourself? Uh, my name is Nick Sabado. I go by Nick D on the internet. I run an interaction design consultancy called Draft. You can take a look at, uh, at it at draft.nu. Excellent. And you are, I think, very well known for offering uh, productized services and specifically some A-B testing services. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So I predominantly do research-driven A-B testing at this point, which basically involves using design research in the service of coming up with testable ideas. People always wonder, what are the things that you should be testing? And uh, I don't know. It's not your call to action button color. It's probably not even your headline. Uh, we're putting a photo on the homepage. It's, uh, we need to figure it out. And we figure it out by seeing how your customers are behaving in practice and what they say they want. So uh, I help you answer those questions and hopefully make you some money in the process. Mm. Yeah, this is super fascinating to me because I feel like as a developer, I, it's, it's perhaps a little bit easier to deliver outcomes without meddling from pesky clients because they can't yeah. see what I'm doing. They don't care how I organize my Git repo. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what the API looks like under the hood. But when it comes to design, everybody's got an opinion, of course. And mm -hmm. a lot of, uh, my understanding is that a lot of designers, in my experience too, is that a lot of designers kind of like say, you know, here are three options, which one do you like better? And I always felt like they were asking the wrong person that. Like the client, obviously they want to like their own website or whatever it is they're building, but don't they want it to be more effective? Isn't that more important? Yeah, yeah. I I always try and focus critique around that sort of thing. I hear very similar things where people kind of retreat to personal preferences. They're like, I don't like this color or, you know, purple is my favorite color. Let's use purple. And then I'll turn the question back and I'll be like, well, how does purple fulfill your business goals? Um, how does this preference fulfill the business's goals? And so we're working... I kind of pull you onto my side of the table and say, okay, well, let's work towards a better design, right? Because I don't care if it's purple, right? I care that purple works. So um, having a little bit of detachment as a consultant helps a great deal. I feel like being independent actually helps me a lot as a designer because I really don't care how your website looks. Um, I, I don't. I care that it works effectively and is able to get more customers. And if it's ugly, fine. If it's pretty, great. You know, then it's nice to look at. You know, it doesn't really matter to me. Mm. Yeah. In fact, I, I seem to recall seeing examples. Isn't your favorite website kind of, <laughs> let's, let's just say, not aesthetically pleasing? <laughs> uh, it's uh, definitely unconventional. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fishmonger in, in my hometown that uh, uses a lot of comic sans. I think designers don't like that font. <laughs> I've heard that, yeah. I've heard that, yeah. <laughs> So for somebody, so let's say designers are listening and they, 
you know, you're preaching to the choir by focusing the client, helping the focus the, to focus the client. What am I trying to say? Helping the client focus on achieving the outcome and not just creating pretty pictures. Yeah. So how maybe describing how you would approach a design project uh, would help designers kind of imagine doing that same thing because I am I know from getting questions that people are just kind of like they feel like they're at the mercy of the client's taste. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's let's put taste aside for a moment and go back to what you were talking about before, which is kind of building towards an outcome because. When you're a developer, you can be a tool builder, right? And the tool has an outcome, right? Like, if you make a hammer, then the hammer can bang some nails into some wood. That makes sense. If you build a program, it can do a thing for you. But if you do design at the program, what does it for you better, question mark? Or it does it prettier? Um, So what are some, like, typical outcomes of design that you see? Uh, Well, one of them is if you do design at a conversion funnel. I'm just going to say you're painting it with design and be extremely lazy about this right now. Um, You paint your conversion funnel with design, your conversion rate goes up. Makes sense. Um, If you're a SaaS application owner and you have, and you do design at that, hopefully your churn will be reduced. Hopefully your customer lifetime value will go up. Um, Why do these things happen? Well, it's easier for people to understand how to use the program. It's uh, easier for them to get started with it. Uh, They're more delighted and less likely to go with a competitor. Uh, All of those things are outcomes of better design, right? And taste has nothing to do with it, right? Um, If I inflicted my personal taste on every single one of my clients, there would be a lot more grayscale on the web, and it would probably be sad to most people. Um, So I don't do that. (laughs) I, I keep my personal taste to my living room and try and make that as awesome as possible. Um, Instead, I'm focusing on the outcomes, right? I'm focusing on trying to reduce that churn. How do you do do that? Maybe better onboarding, maybe better lifecycle emails. You might be saying, well, Nick D, that's not design. Okay, well, you're trying to make the thing work better. Um, You're trying to make onboarding communicate better to you. Uh, That can be done with layout and behavior, user experience design. That can be done with visual cues. That's graphic design. Uh, That can be done with a better typographic hierarchy. Uh, All of these things are forms of design that you are applying to an application. And it requires a huge mindset shift for designers who I think they come out of art school not understanding how to get close to the business needs, right? Um, And so the, the biggest mindset shift that happens in this situation is thinking, okay, well, I need to reduce churn in this SaaS application. How do I go about doing that? What if I have a laser focus and I'm just the churn reducing designer? That's my job title, right? Um, all of a sudden, I'm not a designer anymore. I've niched myself down to become a churn reducing designer. How do I do that? Um, I need to put money on the ta- uh, you know, in my paycheck. Uh, how do I do that? And all of a sudden, you start thinking about techniques for actually going about doing that because you're operating on a deadline and you have no other choice. Um, so, okay, well, what design techniques go into that? Well, usually you begin design with research. So I would start figuring out what the existing churn rate is by using analytics, uh, maybe get GA or Mixpanel on there, something like that. I would figure out heat maps. I'd figure out what metrics people are likely to hit that don't churn. 
So people that uh, maybe they upgrade to a paid plan or something like that, what do they do, right? Do they complete onboarding? Do they add 100 of a given widget to an application? Do they um, add to a cart a certain cart volume or something like that? Um, what are the metrics that actually happen here? Okay, well, how do we get the edges of that metric, right? Like, how do we... Uh, instead of, you know, I add 100 of this widget to the application, how do I get people that add 110 or 150, uh, 200, and start to get people doing that? How do I get people doing fewer, like 50, 20, 10? Um, how do I get them less likely to churn? Um, what's the messaging that needs to be taking place there? How do I make things more contextually appropriate? Um, these tend towards more product design questions, but if you're in a startup, you're probably wearing a different hat. If you're working for a client, you definitely have to wear more than one hat. Um, this helps you understand how to converse with clients in a way that actually meets their needs, right? Because it shows you're focused on reducing churn. And then all of a sudden, they're like, well, this person understands my business better um, because my business has churn. Churn is terrifying if you're a SaaS owner, right? Yeah, it's <laughs> it like sucks. Down the drain. It's money going down the drain and lost customers who were once interested in you. And that's, you can't get that back. That's scary. Um, so how do you try and recover that? And how do you try and keep that from happening in the future? Um, those are things that I'm, I mean, I'm kind of going hard on this one example, but I'm using design research methodology to try and figure this out. I might even get people on the phone who churned out and just be like, 30 minutes, $50 Amazon gift card would be insanely valuable to us. Um, ask them questions, figure out how to craft a solution. And then now that you're armed with that information, how do you synthesize that? That's basically the core part of the design process. You listen to customers and then you turn it into a design. Mm. Uh, when I'm putting, I'm sorry? No, go ahead. When I'm putting together a design, I usually, um, I'll prototype it and then just A-B test it. And we can go into A-B testing in a bit, but yeah. So you mentioned something a little bit earlier about making it work better. And there's a, I think it might be a Steve Jobs quote, might not, but it, you know, design's not how it looks, it's how it works. That is the Steve Jobs quote, and it's one of the few that I fully agree with. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you say to, this brings up some really interesting things, and this is kind of the pushback, I, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of devil's advocate here, because I get pushback from designers sure. that say that, you know, it, I couldn't possibly put a value on my design work, because it's design, it's aesthetic, it's you know, it's, I don't know, it's somehow rarefied or it's art. I'm like, no, it's, it's not. It's, it's a B2B thing that you're getting paid to deliver a business outcome. They're like, oh, you Philistine. And, and so yeah. I'm exaggerating a little, but not that much. And the kinds of things that I hear back are like, um, you, you hear them talk about best practices and as if every single website should follow some list of best practices that, mm -hmm. and it, but I think that there is, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but is there a place, is that maybe a starting point, like best practices in design? Is that a starting point or is that just so basic that it would be inherently obvious to anyone who calls himself a designer and, and still they should be working on goals? Or is there a, a way that you could come at a project and just be like, look, this is so clearly unusable and without doing research, I know that it needs to at least have these things done. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's kind of two things that you're bringing up. And one of them is the ego thing, which is I'm so great. Here's my design. I'm Moses with the stone tablets. Yes. And then there's kind of the other thing that is, 
uh, the best practices question. And best practices are basically like, I mean, I, I do this in my job all the time. It's called a heuristic evaluation if you're uh, as old as I am. And you're basically going through a checklist and saying, does the site do this? Yes, great. And that's where you kind of knock off all the no-brainery things. Like, um, does the phone keypad, does the, on an iPhone, does the keyboard switch to numeric keypad when you're entering credit card number or phone number? Um, it should do that. That's pretty beyond debate at this point. Um, is the website responsive? It should do that. That's pretty beyond debate at this point. Um, and, and so you're just kind of going through and ticking those things off. But if you... If you are doing a heuristic evaluation on a website and thinking that you're coming down on high with the grand scheme of design, um, I might, <laughs> I might check that premise a little bit. <laughs> I so I even if you do come down and you think that you're coming up with this amazing thing and there's a bolt of lightning, I will fully concede that when you're doing creative work, there is a certain flash of insight that occurs that is part of the process that comes from you and possibly you alone or it initially comes from you and it might be massaged by a team but it still comes from you that you can feel grateful for like every major artwork and creative work and design project of the past century had to have come from somebody right like i'll i'll concede that however um in my experience, design improves when it's put in front of a team if that team knows how to communicate effectively. And it, the honest is on you as a designer to understand how to communicate effectively and have a decent critique process that's not broken and weird. And we can go into how to do that. Um, but it's also, if you believe you are so important that your design does not actually run up against business metrics, why are you being hired? Yeah, like, you bring up a really good point, which is, you know, okay, we ticked all these boxes. The the stuff that's beyond debate has been fixed, uh, or at least it's it's on the slate to be fixed. But we want to go farther, and at that point, uh, it, I think it it makes. I just can't come up with a, a scenario where it makes where it doesn't make sense to interact with the customers. It it seems yeah. like that's always the answer. But then you get the sort of pushback is, again, devil's advocate, the pushback is, you know, no, genius design, if, if and then they always throw the quote in your face, you know, if, if Henry Ford asked his customers, they would have said, we want faster horses, which I, I don't even think he right. actually said that, but that's, that's the quote that you get back. And it's like, well, you don't have to, in my opinion, you don't have to ask your customers how the design should look or how it should work or what we should do, but you can certainly talk to them about problems they've experienced with the existing design or the last time they did a particular task in your the competitor's product how did that go what were the good things what were the bad things doesn't mean they need to tell you how to fix it i think you know yeah so uh, there's there's the faster horse quote and holy wow there's so much hero worship in the design industry like that people trot out that quote and Steve Jobs quotes and Paul Rand quotes all the time. And I get it. It's because those people are successful, capable designers um, or product engineers or whatever you want to call Henry Ford. Um, I think it is that is a dangerous line of thinking that does not necessarily hew to the business goals and you're being hired for a business reason. Um, but to your point about kind of the dangers of listening to your customers, let's let's go through and, and trot out a few examples. Um, one of them would be a focus group. 
Um, I personally do not like focus groups because they tend to get um, Shanghai by one person, right? Or the loudest people and wallflowers tend not to, to voice their opinions. There's also kind of the power of suggestion scenario where uh, the first opinion tends to get voiced and then everybody kind of reinforces it and they think, yeah, that is right. Um, and so you end up in this kind of dangerous line of thinking. Another thing that could potentially happen, you could get on a one-on-one -on -one call with somebody, which I always recommend, get on one-on-one -on -one calls with somebody, and they happen to be a crazy outlier power user. Um, first off, in 11 years of doing this, I've never actually seen that happen. <laughs> uh, but assuming it does happen, you now have a hilarious story to talk about. And presumably when you're doing interviews, you're interviewing more than one person. I've always, I think the worst case scenario has been three people that I've interviewed. So if you end up getting three power users in a row, congratulations. That's like a once in a century thing that might ever happen. Yeah. Um, right. So I, I think there's a fear there. What I think is, is kind of born out of that is just like a fear of talking to people because there's definitely an, an ego aspect to it because you're being told that your opinions are the ones that don't matter, right? And it's, it's hard exactly. to sit there and listen. Right. Yeah. What do you yeah. think about – this feels related to me, although it might seem like it's out of left field. What do you think about the practice, the common practice of designers putting portfolio like pictures on their website? Like, here's this pretty picture of this site I designed, and, and here's another one, and here's another one. Yeah, so portfolios, I'm not against portfolios, but I think what you're saying is just a gallery of images. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's talk about how to do portfolios well. Yeah, that's a better question. <laughs> what, what, to you, what's a good portfolio look like? A good portfolio is not just a flat gallery of images. Um, and the reason, let, let's talk about why that's not the case, and then let's talk about a good portfolio. Um, that's not a good way of presenting your work because people make their own cognitive leap about what it is you actually do. Um, so what did you work on with that? Well, if you're just proposing visuals, then people are going to go ahead and assume visuals. What I love with portfolios is when you present a client and you present the thinking behind your work, your role on the project, and the outcome. So it looks more like a case study almost. So instead of just saying, here I did... Um, I'll come up with one, the website for PepsiCo. Um, wow, that's a really huge client. Congratulations, Nick D of 2009. You did a great job on that. Well, I was part of a team with eight other people, and I didn't actually have a very large role on it. I did the content strategy for PepsiCo. Great. Congratulations, Nick D. Well, what were the challenges with the content strategy? And then all of a sudden, I've positioned myself as a content strategist and not as some random designer who proposed uh, just posted a screenshot of PepsiCo. Um, so that that's one thing that can possibly happen. Um, what I love also talking about and the most persuasive thing that you can do is talk about the ROI of your job. And this is um, something that designers get really squicked out about. But I'll say I redesigned this website and conversions went up by 20 percent. If you can say that, that is the best case study for your job that you can ever have. Right. right? It is Even the, if the outcome is aesthetically ugly. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, if it's this is the th I, I feel like the two things are not necessarily connected. And yeah. I feel like they it, they don't need to be or they shouldn't be. I hate to use the word should or shouldn't. But but that let me let me put it the other way, which is that people, I think, link them as if they are or they think of them as if they are linked. 
like any good website that is effective must also be beautiful. Right, right. Which I would Yeah. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with that. And I think that any, if you look at, let's talk about effectiveness in a website, right? Let's look at a, a site like the New York Times. I think that the New York Times has occasionally excellent typography and is mostly ugly and cluttered and has no sense of white space, right? Is it effective? Yes, it's absolutely effective. They're the nation's paper of record. Everyone goes to them. They have one of the best digital strategies of anybody in journalism right now. And I'm not going to go like hating on the New York Times for their bad typography. They have made these decisions. Um, I don't know if I would necessarily agree with those decisions, but I am a designer and I have opinions for a living. So, you know, bully on them. That's great. I'm not hired by them. Um, but then you end up with like these like lazy portfolio redesigns where people like try and redo the boarding pass or drudge report or something like that. And, and they're not understanding the business issues around it. Right. They're not understanding what led what led like all the technical debt involved in the boarding pass to be a boarding pass. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Dustin Curtis. That's that's the infamous one. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and then somebody from American Airlines actually emailed Dustin Curtis and it was like, actually, we have like 25 boarding passes that are not launching because X, Y, Z, right? Yeah. Well, you know, come in as a consultant, fix it. Yeah, there are reasons. <laughs> right. There's grunt work behind it. Right. There are things. It's, it's complicated, especially in big organizations. But I, I just, I, I feel like I, the message that I not so secretly am loving uh, to hear you say is that you can achieve an outcome an outcome is measurable and design doesn't get sort of a free pass to not deliver business results right? yeah yeah i mean let's go really granular and didactic for a minute and think like okay you have a home page that home page is getting customers the customers are converting at a certain rate now you make a change to the home page in some capacity. You turn it purple. I don't know. You change the headline. You, you commit a design decision upon the home page. Eventually, if all other things are in a vacuum, that conversion rate will step function up, down, or the same based on what you do, right? Um, no matter what happens, no matter whether or not people in your organization like purple or whether you liked that shade of purple or whether it tested well in a focus group. Um, if you take that to expand to your entire design practice, all of a sudden you start thinking about the economic ramifications of your work more. Mm -hmm. And I, ever since I've done that, well, clients have trusted me more. I've been able to charge more and I've been able to show exactly what design does, right? Like it started out as, it was called commercial art in the 50s and 60s. Right. Right. It was in the service of commerce and you're working for a startup and they're paying you, right? Or an agency and they're paying you. Well, they're paying you not because they are giving you a gift out of art school. They're paying you because you're able to provide a return on investment. So they're making that calculation. Right. Why aren't you? Right. Yeah. I mean, right. They, the, yeah, that's a great way to put it because the client is measuring your return. So yeah. they, it might be negative or it might be positive. They might be happy or sad that they gave you that pile of money. They're measuring it. So why shouldn't you measure it? It's being measured. And if you as a designer can quantify that in a, you know, prior to taking on a client 
and use it in your sales and marketing and say, look, I can quantify my value. If you are this kind of client and you're in this sort of scenario, I'm highly confident that I can create these kinds of business outcomes for your business. Right, right. So like, I think the bigger question is like, why aren't people, I mean, we're kind of in agreement here and that's probably why we're on a podcast together, but like, why aren't more people doing this, right? Like, um, and maybe it's, it's either hard or it's somebody else's job or, um, you don't think that it's your job. Um, well, gain control of your narrative and make it your job. Here's how you do it. Um, you're going to open a website called Google Analytics it's crappy. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> You're not going to like it either. <laughs> and start measuring what the conversion rate looks like and adding annotations about when you do design decisions. So I set up goals for revenue and for conversions in Google Analytics. And there are a bunch of tutorials around doing this. Uh, conversion Excel is probably the best. We can cite that in the show notes if you need. Um, and you basically are setting up how much money the business is making in Google Analytics and how many customers you're ending up getting in and whether or not they're converting in from trial or something like that if you run a SaaS app. Um, order volume, that sort of thing if you run an e-commerce site. Um, and then um, you, whenever you make a significant change to the site or application or whatever it is, you add what's called uh, annotation in Google Analytics where you basically say, okay, on this day we did this. And it's just a little flag that shows up and indicates, okay, on this day we did this. And you're writing that down. You're saying, we sent this email campaign. We changed the headline. We kicked off an A-B test. We called it and rolled it out to everybody, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And then the third thing you're probably going to be doing is A-B testing, where you um, actually go through and start to measure the economic impact of your decisions. And so A-B testing allows you to basically pit two different designs against each other. You have a control, the original, and then the change, the variant. Um, and you say, okay, well, was you know we're going to measure conversion rate, we're going to measure uh, revenue, average revenue per user, those sorts of things. Various key metrics to the site and see how people behave under the new conditions. Um, whether there's relative increase or decrease, whether there are any outliers and we need to discard them. And uh, let it go for a couple of weeks and take a look back at the results and determine, okay, well, this worked out really well, or we have no idea whether this worked out well or not because it's inconclusive, or this was an unfettered disaster and we should not roll it out. <laughs> yeah. I, this and, is perhaps uh, uh, overly detailed for the purposes of this podcast, but I'm dying of curiosity. Uh, how do you control against things like, uh, oh, and oh, by the way, we launched a new like email campaign in the middle of this test, which is driving a completely different kind of traffic to the site. It, like, do you, do you have the client kind of try and keep as much static and constant as possible across the whole business? Yes, you, you try and keep everything consistent throughout the business. Now, if you run an email campaign, maybe send them to another page, like a landing page or something like that. Um, they should not be making any changes to the test page while it's running. Um, otherwise, have to throw away the result but that happens um yeah you you kind of run against the move fast and break things uh, mentality in a lot of ways when you're doing a b testing but you're also being the flip side of that is that you're being thoughtful and deliberate and careful and uh understanding in a very rigorous way what the impact of your changes are um which helps you out quite a bit as a designer yes absolutely 
Yeah, it's, it's, let's see, where, I, I kind of want to, I'm tempted to go down the A-B testing rabbit hole. Is there, is there a way to do that without turning it into, like, your, your class? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Five and a half hours later. Right, yeah, it's, it's um, such a big topic. It's a huge topic. Um, I mean, my recommendation is get my course. Uh, I have a course called the A-B testing manual where I teach you all about this and uh, take a look at Conversion XL's blog and Copy Hacker's blog. Um, they're at the forefront of figuring this sort of stuff out. Um, and I mean, you're not alone on this front, right? Like it's definitely a situation where, okay, well, you're operating in a certain way and now you have to change things procedurally in an organization. And that requires a big cultural shift, a big mindset shift among not just you, but a lot of the rest of your team. Um, so I think maybe a interesting question to talk about is how do you affect that mindset shift within an organization? Cause that has nothing to do with AB testing. It has everything to do with focusing design on business results, which is something even organizations just kind of mess up. Like they, they hire designers cause they think they have to, right? Cause you have a developer. Now you have a designer. It's like, great, cool. What's the designer doing here? <laughs> you know? Um, so I think that, yeah, I mean, sorry, what, what, what can you do? What has worked for you to make that shift to help people make that shift mentally? Yeah. So one of the things I do is focus design I, on a specific goal, right? So it's not just I'm hiring a designer to help out with things, but I'm hiring a designer to help out with maybe you, if you're a SaaS, you split it between marketing and application. Um, then the application kind of becomes more of a product designer, UX designer, and the market and the, the front page uh, becomes more of like a marketing designer or something like that, like a copywriter or something like that. Um, and both of them are doing different kinds of customer research, but they're probably operating on different parts of the business. Like, for example, the product designer would be talking more with like customer support inquiries and churn reduction and that sort of thing. Whereas marketing is probably focusing more on landing pages, conversion rate, target demographics, that sort of thing. Um, when you get more granular and more specialized, you can probably have designers that are focusing expressly on improving checkout, right? Or running A-B tests or planning out um, like project managing changes to the site or something like that. So um, what I do with my clients, I actually have a Trello board going with everybody that uh, shows all of the changes that we have decided bear out on the research, what research supports them, and uh, what we're going to be doing about it. So some of them just get rolled out to everybody because they're like bug fixes. Some of them, uh, most of them, end up getting turned into A-B tests that get turned into working prototypes. Um, you end up having a designer and a developer usually working on prototypes, set the expectation that most of their work is going to get thrown away and that is okay. Because mm -hmm. a lot of people love seeing their work ship and they love seeing it in front of customers and they love seeing an impact. But usually the only thing that you're seeing is the thing that happened that worked best like six weeks ago. And people get frustrated by that. Right. Um, and rapid prototyping is something that... Um, it happens with new software, but it doesn't really happen when you're iterating like a conversion funnel very often. So there's usually when I come in, I'm unwinding a lot of technical debt on that and making it into a situation where you can actually release testable prototypes frequently. Um, all of this has to come from the top, right? 
uh, and this is a gross oversimplification in five minutes of what I talk about for five and a half hours of how to do on my course, but um, should provide some sort of contour to the, the, the situation, right? Like you have, um, how do I put this best? You have resources that are usually focusing on maybe new features or bug fixes, and you're diverting those resources towards creating new ideas and researching new concepts in a way that forces people to kind of question the way that the business operates. Yes. That's the, the fundamental thing, right? And that never feels imperative, right? It feels it has very to, risky. It's risky, and it's also not the fire that's in front of you right now, yeah. right? And you have 10,000 things that you think are better. So that's why it has to come from the top, because you have to kind of just say, no, we're always doing this. Let Jane over here deal with the fire. Jim over here, you're going to be working on the prototype, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, I see the same thing. Just I, That's almost a general consulting thing, you know, just trying to, trying to encourage organizational change is really hard. And uh, it's it really, it's what's, I think, especially interesting about this is that, you know, design, the kind of design that you're doing, I would say, is very consultative and can unearth perhaps long-held notions about the way the world works and kind of reveal them to be perhaps incorrect and resurfacing these decisions that were perhaps made explicitly or, or just uh, de facto decisions that were made earlier, perhaps way earlier in the life of the business. Yeah. It dredges up gunk, you know? Yeah. But, you know, the, the result of dredging all that out of there is that you, you could potentially end up with a, a much more effective, whatever you're doing, you know, effective conversion of whatever you're trying to convert. Yeah. And a lot of this involves shedding management ego too, right? Like you have, I love telling this story, but like basically you'll have the CTO wants to do something one way and the first line support person is like, no, it actually should be completely a different other way. I trust the first line support person. I will always trust the person that's 25 rungs lower on the ladder than is actually getting their hands dirty than the, you know, somebody who has probably the decision-making authority to fire me and harvest my organs for sport. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> and, and you have to say no to that person. And, and that is what A-B testing is. It's like, and you can even be like, okay, well, I'll humor you and test it. Well, you're wasting testing time and resources. I very much try to not indulge that line of thinking and use testing to settle debates. It should be backed with research. And nobody's researching more every day than the first line support person, right? Yeah. So, I, so yeah. I regularly have you know team meetings every every two weeks. We have a team meeting on a, a SaaS that I'm consulting with, and the customer service lead is on that call. And it and it's and thank goodness because. You know, we're sitting around at our ivory tower about, you know, the way things should work. And, you know, the dev sort of the dev unit will think like, oh, obviously things should work like this. But we are so far removed from the mentality of our user base that it's almost certain that we're going to get it wrong. Right. It's almost any kind of decision we make about the way something works is almost always going to violate the mental model of the actual end users. And the customer support people really keep us honest, like, well, yeah, 
you know, you can add keyboard commands if you want to, but nobody's going to use them. You know, right. like we can't even get people to, you know, do something that we would consider very basic. We, we have to explain to them how to like make sure their changes are saved or something super basic, so basic. I can't even think of it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's fabulous. I think it's great. Um, so the, I think the going back to the AB testing a little bit, what would you say to the concept of data-driven design? I mean, is that what you're talking about? The sort of Google versus Apple where people kind of say, well, Google, you know, they'll, they, every, all their stuff, and this is probably less true these days, but for a long time, you could kind of objectively say that their stuff was a lot less pretty than anything Apple did. Yeah, yeah. In terms of a digital user interface. And, and they would say, well, Google would say, yeah, well, we tested it and these colors tested better and this, this, this button size tested better. So that's what we went with, you know? Yeah. And it create it can create something like Google Analytics, which is a which is a very overwhelming interface. Right. So I'm not necessarily somebody to advocate for strictly data driven design. I think that it I've seen that happen, and it ends up looking like Microsoft Word art, and it's not. You kind of run into local maximum problems with it, and it's also like you're taking all the humanity out of it, and. You, I personally and ethically believe it makes more sense to have a business that promotes the impression that there are actual friendly humans behind it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I don't want a world where everything is like hyper-conversion optimized and maximized so that it like hypnotizes you into buying stuff. Um, I don't think that's, that's useful, and I don't think that's bettering the world in any way. Um, now, the question is really, like, where is that line, right? Like, exactly. where where are you ethically, and what does that look like? And I have no idea how to answer that on a podcast episode, man. That is, that's a three-beer question. Like, that is seriously, like, I'm serious. It's, it's one of those things that, like, you know it when you see it, and you're vetting it constantly. I will say I'm probably more of, like, a 70-30 data hunch guy, um, or data aesthetics or whatever you want to call it. Um, it might even hew towards 80-20 sometimes. But like, even though I am using data and numbers to strongly promote my case, you have to understand that there are always knock-on ramifications with what you're putting out there, right? Like, you might be signing up more customers and they might not actually want your service and they might be angrier, right? Or it might be more of a support load and it might be harder for your business to serve. And I don't know. I'm just optimizing the conversion rate, right? Like it's very easy and lazy to go down that line of thinking. Yeah, that make it's it's got to be a balance, and I think it comes from the specifics of the situation and talking to the client. What's going to make them happy? How opinionated they are? How much of the part of their brand that is that opinionated nature, and, or whatever it is. Yeah. But it, it's. I mean, I guess that's that's where the expertise comes in is like deciding where to draw that line. Right, right. Yeah, and I mean, that's the kind of thing that, like, honestly, the, the real answer is work in the design industry for 10 years and spend a long time thinking about significant issues in the tech industry and gain a moral center and sense of responsibility about what it is you're doing. And uh, have fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I'm chuckling, but yes, you know. Yeah, there's so. truth to it, I think. It's hard. It's not... You you are responsible for a lot of things, and you have to you have to be um, cognizant of that. So, awesome. 
Well, that's probably a good place to leave it. Uh, Nick, thanks so much for coming on. Where can people find out more about you online? Uh, you can take a look at my website at draft.nu. And if you want to look at the A-B testing manual, that is at abtestingmanual.com. And uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Fun talk. If you'd like to learn more about how to ditch hourly billing, please go to valuepricingbootcamp.com to sign up for my free email course. Again, that URL is valuepricingbootcamp.com. Thanks. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time, or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space, or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one -on -one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call, you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one -on -one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com slash call, C-A-L-L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com slash call. Hope to see you there.